today, and it's already been commented on what a beautiful day it is. So a great Lord's Day to be here with God's people. And if you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're here. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. If you are visiting, you've joined us in the middle of a study of uh, the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we've titled this study, Still Standing. And if you'll take your Bible and turn with me, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 8 through 12 uh, this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I'm uh, rapidly approaching my 60th birthday. It's less than two months away. Um, it's uh, closing in on me, as I like to say. Uh, to many of you uh, this morning here, that probably sounds really, really old. To some of you, it may sound fairly young. Uh, to others of you, it may uh, be right, about right. Uh, but there's something about those birthdays with zeros on the end that kind of get us thinking, right? I mean, I always talk about, you know, the fives and the zeros are kind of the important ones, but it's really the ones with the zeros that kind of give us pause and cause us to reflect. And I've been doing quite a bit of reflecting about life lately as you get ready to kind of reach one of those, uh, uh, one of those milestones in life. But I ran across something. I heard this deal the other day. You probably heard it before, but comedian uh, George Carlin years ago had a routine about aging. And that's been hitting home with me and kind of resonating lately, so I thought I'd share it with you. He says, if uh, you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging, you think in fractions. Uh, how old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. He says, that's the key. You, you get into your teen years, and now they can't hold you back. You jump ahead to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. <laughs> and then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. Yes but then you turn 30. You become 21, you turn 30, then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes, it's all slipping away. Before you know it, you reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60, you didn't think you would. So you become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, make it to 60. You built up so much momentum, you hit 70. <laughs> After that, it's a day-to-day -day thing. You hit Wednesday. <laughs> and then he says, uh, you get into your 80s and every day is a complete cycle. You hit lunch, uh, you turn 4.30 and you reach bedtime. But then I like this, he says, then a strange, things hap th strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half, you know, people will say. And then he says, may you all make it to a healthy 100 and a half. Well, I like that. There's a lot of truth to that, and I think all of us realize. But by any measure, life goes quickly, doesn't it? It speeds by. And in fact, the older you get, it goes more quickly. It races. When you read the Bible, it says that, that our life, we're, we're like a, a flower that comes forth and then fades away. We're like a, a shadow that you can see and then it flees. Our life is like a vapor, a mist that, that, that appears and then is gone. Whatever age you are this morning, though, it's important and imperative that each one of us make the most of every day that God has given to us, that we maximize our lives, that we love life, and that we enjoy the life that God has given to us, that we uh, seize every day, if you will, and, and squeeze every day that God gives us to get the most out of it. And really, that's the message of our passage here this morning in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. It's about living and loving the good life. It's about enjoying life at its best and at its fullest. Follow along silently as I read these verses for us. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, 
kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for, the, for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, so reads God's inspired word. And you can see in your outline this morning, I've got three things I want us to look at this morning, three simple points to take us through this passage. I want to look at the enjoyment, about, about what is the good life. And then I want to look at the essentials. What do we have to do to live the good life? What's the, the recipe, if you will, for living the good life? And then I want to end with uh, the expectation or the effect. And that is, if we're living the good life, what is our expectation? What will God do for us? So let's start here with the enjoyment. Now, I want to kind of drop down in the middle of this passage, the end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10, because I think this section here is the core or the center of this passage. And the surrounding verses just kind of flesh out uh, this core idea. And the idea here is enjoying the good life. That's really what this text is about. Now, there's three choices, or there may be more, but three main choices that all of us have as we face life. We can escape life. And tragically, there's a lot of people today that I think are doing that. Uh, through drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it is, they're trying to escape life, to kind of numb the pain down in their life and just escape. There's other people that just endure life. Life's a drudgery, it's a grind. They're just kind of trying to make it through and endure it. But the third choice we have is to enjoy life, to maximize it, uh, to seize life, and to enjoy what God has given to us. And as believers in Christ, you and I should love life. We ought to embrace it and enjoy it. Uh, we're to cultivate in our lives, down in, within our soul, a love for life. I mean, Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, Peter here in our passage, he's a realist. Peter's not some blind optimist, you know, that, hey, everything's going to be great. You're going to live the good life and never have any problems. I mean, he knows believers aren't exempt from the difficult and diverse trials and suffering of life. In fact, that's what this letter of 1 Peter is about. If, if you've been with us in this study, you know that these believers Peter's writing to are in Asia Minor, uh, the modern-day country of Turkey. That's the early 60s A.D., and uh, they're being hounded and harassed by their culture. Uh, they're being maligned, mistreated, mocked. Uh, by the culture they live in. So their lives are not easy lives. They're undergoing trial and struggle. In fact, if you look back at the very beginning verse of this book, he, he calls the believers aliens. They're strangers in this world. Down in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that they've been distressed by various trials. And in fact, next week, uh, we'll look at uh, verses 13, 14, and following. And he says there in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... So the following context is going to be about what we do when we suffer for the things of Christ. So Peter is realistic here about what life is all about. But still, in spite of the difficulty and the struggles of life, Peter says at the end of verse 9, I love this, 
For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Now, I think that kind of surprises some Christians when they read that. I think maybe, you know, God's kind of got it out for them, or, you know, God wants to make our life miserable. No, he says, you've been called for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. God is our Father, and God desires to bless the lives of His children. And then he says in verse 10, let him who means to love life and see good days. In other words, the one that desires life, that desires to love and to see good days. Now, this is a quote here. In fact, all of verses 10 through 12, Peter is quoting from the 34th Psalm. Evidently, Peter liked that Psalm because he quotes from it earlier in 1 Peter 2, 3. He quotes there Psalm 34, 8, a great passage that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So he quotes that in 1 Peter 2, 3, quotes it again here. Um, Just a little background on that psalm you might find interesting. Um, Psalm 34 is written about an event in David's life that you can read about in 1 Samuel 21. Remember, uh, David had been anointed king, but Saul was still on the throne. And David was fleeing from Saul who wanted to kill him. And finally, it got so bad, David went down to the city of Gath, where the Philistines were, he knew that Saul couldn't pursue him there because they were the enemies of Israel. David was there, and he felt protected for a while, but eventually David began to feel his life was, under, was being threatened. So you remember what he does. David feigns madness. He begins to feign that he's lost his mind. He begins to grow out his beard and sit around and drool all over himself, and he must have been a good actor because the Philistine king Abimelech believed him and let him go. They figured, this guy's no harm to us, so they let him go. And Psalm 34 is David's prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude to God for delivering him from this terrible situation uh, that he'd gotten himself into. And in that psalm, he says, let the one who means to love life and to see good days. So the key idea is loving life and seeing good days. And the expression here, to love life, literally means to live zestfully. We've all, you know, heard about a person that has a zest for life. That's what it means. And it refers, I think, more here to the quality of life than the quantity of life, although that could be part of it. Primarily, it's the quality of our life. Uh, The New Living Translation says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, then here's the things you need to do. Now, the Bible never tells you or me to be unrealistic about our situations or to not face reality, to not face the facts, but it does encourage us to take a positive approach to life by faith that makes the most even of difficult situations. Let me say this this morning as well. If you're a younger person who's here, maybe parents of a young family, This is especially important for you because you have so much of your life ahead of you. You don't want to miss the good life that God has for you that we're going to see in this passage here this morning. With all of that life ahead of you, commit yourself to live the good life, uh, to love life, to, to get up every day excited about the life that God has given to you. Now, I'm sure you're wondering at this point, well, what is the good life? You know, what does the good life look like? How do I know if I have it? And how can I get it for myself? So that brings us to our second point here, the essentials. 
And that's really the other things here in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 around that main core thought of loving uh, the good life. So what we have here is really a recipe for uh, the good life. Now, if you back up, back up to verse 8, notice he says there, finally or to sum up. Now, a lot of people think that Peter's just like most preachers here saying finally, and then he's going to go on for another you know, chapter and a half. But actually what this is, when he says finally or to sum up, he's summing up the middle section of the book. The middle section of the book starts back in chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12, and it's going to end here in verse, uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. So he's summing up what he's been talking about. Now, this middle section of 1 Peter has been about submission. Remember, he talked about being submissive to government. Then he talked about servants being submissive to their masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives be submissive to your husbands. Then he deals with the husbands in chapter 3, verse 7. And now he's saying, to sum up, let all be harmonious. So he's talking to all of us now as believers, and he's saying, this is how you live a submissive life submitting yourselves to one another, and this submissive life of having good relationships with people around you, that's the good life. The good life results from an attitude of submission in all of our relationships that makes life rewarding and rich. So the good life here is set forth in terms of relationships. This passage is all about getting along with other people. Submissive people care about what other people think. They don't just think about themselves. They have good relationships, and through that, they live a good life. So the key to the good life is relationships. Uh, one man said it like this years ago. This may be a, a little bit of an overstatement, but I, I still think it's a, a, a good uh, thought. He says, all personal growth, all personal damage, as well as all personal healing and growth come through relationships with others. Now, maybe a little bit overstated, but our growth, our damage, our healing, all of those things in many ways come through our relationships with other people. There was a, a study that was done by Harvard University over a period of almost 80 years, and they finally released the results of this a couple years ago. There was an article in the Washington Post back in April of 2017. Here's what the article says. It says, for, for close to 80 years, Harvard University researchers have studied the lives of the same group of men. Since 1938, they've tracked their development, documenting every two years details about their physical and emotional health, their employment, their families, and their friendships. By looking at human development over a lifespan, the early researchers hoped to find trends that would provide insight into what factors, now listen to this, ultimately led to a good life. So what's the key to the good life? The big takeaway, it says, from the decades of research and millions of dollars spent on this famous grant study is that as the Beatles sang long ago, all you need is love. It was not money or status that determined a good life. Those who were happiest and healthier reported strong interpersonal relationships, while those who were isolated had declines in both mental and physical health as they aged. So this Harvard study, 80 years following the lives of these men, found out that the key to the good life is, is relationships, good relationships with other people. 
Now, we all know that as we've lived our lives and we look around at other people. People with poor relationships with other people are rarely happy. If you have a couple and they're having a lot of conflict in their marriage, I can guarantee you neither one of them would say, hey, we're living a good life. Or people who are, who are battling with their parents or struggling with children or they're alienated from a sibling or they're, they're strife with, uh, at the workplace with other people there. You show me a person with wrecked relationships and I'll show you a person who's not living the good life. No matter how much money they have, no matter how good-looking they are, no matter how famous or successful they may be. They're not living the good life. The good life is a life in right relationship, first of all, with God and then with other people. You have to start with the vertical first because God's our creator, and we were created to be in relationship with Him. So I want to just pause here for a moment and say, look, if you don't know God and have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, you don't have the vertical right, the horizontal will never be what it needs to be. You'll never live the good life. The good life starts with coming to know the one who is goodness himself, that is God. I alluded earlier to another passage from Psalm 34 where it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you've never taken your first taste of God's grace and God's mercy through Jesus Christ, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to believe in him and trust in him and taste and see his goodness, the one who came and died in your place. So that's where it starts. If you're going to live the good life, the vertical relationship has to be established and it has to be right. But once we, we trust in Christ as our Savior and receive God's life, the one who's the source of life, that transforms then the horizontal aspect of life. I know I've quoted this a lot of times, but my old friend Dr. Toussaint at Dallas Seminary used to say, I can tell how you're getting along with God by looking at how you're getting along with other people. It's a dead giveaway. Now, someone can say, oh, I've got a wonderful relationship with God. Well, if your relationships are a wreck, you're not. Because the vertical relationship with God, if it's right, it's going to issue forth into relationships and the horizontal that are good. So what we have here in this passage this morning, and these verses we'll look at, is six essentials to live the good life, or six conditions or prerequisites for living the good life. It's what the good life looks like. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each of these words. They're fairly self-explanatory, but I'll just mention them quickly. Notice he says, to sum up, let all be harmonious. That word means uh, to think the same or to mind the same thing, to have the same mindset, to be governed by the mind of Christ. Now, this is not talking about uniformity. One thing we never want in this church is uniformity, everybody being the same. We love diversity, people with different personalities, different gifts, different talents. We want all kinds of diversity, and we also don't need unanimity. Everybody's not going to agree on everything. But what we want is unity around the person of our great triune God, the person of God, uh, 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 the Son of God, God in human flesh, uh, the gospel message of how to be saved and have a right relationship with God, and that the Bible is God's Word. Those are the the great truths that we rally around and we mind the same thing. So we're not looking for uniformity or unanimity, but unity. And to not be focused on petty peripheral issues. If that's what people get focused on, inevitably there's going to be conflict and you know what's going to happen. You're not going to be living the good life after a while. It's going to be just a bunch of problems and fighting. 
So we need cooperation in the midst of diversity, minding the same thing. Then he says, be sympathetic. That word literally means to feel together or feel the same thing. So he goes from the first word to minding the same thing to now feeling the same thing. So he moves from thinking together to feeling together. And and one man I read this week said it beautifully. I I hope they'll, they'll remember this. He says, the word sympathetic here is your heart, your hurt in my heart. That's a great way to to describe what this means, this idea of being sympathetic. It's your hurt in my heart. It's demonstrating a concern and a care and an interest in other people. Now, one of the things that uh, my wife and I've talked about, my wife Cheryl and I've talked about, in fact, just a couple days ago, we were both just talking about how just recently it seems like in our sphere and the people we know, there are just so many difficulties and struggles and problems of all kind. Our prayer list is just getting longer and longer. And we pray together a lot at night before we go to sleep, and the prayers just keep getting longer. There's so many things to be praying for, and it's a privilege to do that. But something that we were talking about is with just kind of the Niagara of problems that exist today in our culture and in life, is it's easy to become kind of callous and numb and uncaring to people's problems. And you may experience the same thing. But what we don't want to happen is for someone in our church body or someone we know or a friend to have a difficult problem and they come and tell us about it and it's kind of like we think in the back of our mind, well, just another person with another problem. We don't want to respond that way. I want to have your hurt in my heart and I want my hurt to be in your heart too. I want you to care about me. But a lot of times, you know, when we have a problem, we want our hurt to be in the hearts of other people, but we don't really ever have their hurts in our heart. We, we don't really care about them or think about them much. And one of the ways that you live the good life is you care about other people, and their hurts come into your heart, and you pray for them, and they pray for you. It's what Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Then he says, be brotherly. This is uh, the word Philadelphia. It means to be friendly in mind, to be courteous in your attitude. In other words, to be loving and courteous to the people that come into our lives. That uh, you, you treat people who come into your lives like a friend. So we're friendly of mind and courteous in attitude. Then he says, be kind-hearted or tender-hearted. The basic word here in the Greek language of this word is the idea of the bowels or the intestines. Uh, back in that day, that they felt the deepest emotions came from the intestinal region. We kind of say the same thing today. We'll say, you know, I, I feel this down in my gut. You know, I've got a gut feeling about this. It has the idea of way down deep inside is where our feelings for other people come from. It's the same word that's used of Jesus often in the Gospels where it says, and Jesus was deeply moved with compassion. So it's a a deep sense of compassion and feeling for other people and the problems and the struggles they have. And then he says, be humble in spirit, or literally you could translate that, humble-minded. Now in the the, the highly competitive Greco-Roman world where Peter is addressing, um, uh, humility was a sign of weakness and shame. The only people who were humble were people of degraded social status, basically. And so what Peter is calling on here of believers in his day is radical. This is, is countercultural, especially the people in the churches he's writing to who were of higher social status or had money. And you're calling upon these people 
to be humble-minded. Now, to be humble doesn't mean we think less of ourselves. It means we think of ourselves less. I think it's a good way to put that, and probably all of us could do with a good dose of that. I like what uh, Martin Luther said years ago when he said, God made everything that exists out of nothing, and as long as you're nothing, God can make something out of you. God's not going to use us if we think we're something. It's when we're nothing that God can take us and use us. But think about this. Humble people are easy to get along with. When you're around a, a person that's proud and that's arrogant, they're difficult to get along with. But if you show me a humble-minded person, they have good relationships, and they live the good life. Then he moves here in uh, verse 9 from right attitudes to right action, not returning evil for evil. And then he says, or insult for insult. So he goes from deeds, evil for evil, to words, insult for insult. Now, the natural response in the human heart is revenge and retaliation when we are wronged. We see this escalating in our culture. We live in a fight back, strike back, get even culture. You do something to me, you're going to pay for it, and I'm going to get you back. I mean, we see that just rising in our culture. And he's telling us here, don't return evil for evil. Don't have a spirit of revenge and retaliation. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus tells us back in uh, Luke chapter 6. Back in Luke chapter 6, uh, Jesus uh, said this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those uh, who mistreat you. And then on down in verse 32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And then he says down in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be the sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So he's saying here, look, don't return evil for evil. And then he says, don't return insult for insult. This speaks of our words. And then notice in the middle of verse 9, this big word here, but. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now that's in the present tense in the Greek, which means to continue to do this. Now, I don't know about with you, but it's hard enough for me just not to retaliate or strike back. But he goes even further and says, it's not just that you don't retaliate and strike back. You're to return that with a blessing. And the word blessing means to praise or to speak well of. So he says, it's okay to retaliate, but you retaliate with blessing. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. By the way, a lot of you have heard me quote Warren Wiersbe over the years. Great Bible teacher. He passed away about two weeks ago. He was 90 years of age. A great man of God. But Warren Wiersbe says this. As Christians, we can live on three levels. We can return evil for good, which is the satanic level. We can return good for good and evil for evil, which is the human level. Or we can return good for evil, which is the divine level. That's what God calls on us to do. We're called to bless. Now, to bring that down to where we live, um, you may have an employer who regularly berates you, doesn't treat you the way he or she should, and the Bible says you're to bless that ungodly employer. 
Uh, we have in our culture a rising chorus of voices that mock our Christianity. They mock what we believe. We're to bless those who mock us. You may live with a difficult husband in a marriage. You're to bless him. Uh, you may have an obnoxious neighbor who's driving you crazy. <laughs> You're to bless that person. On and on we could go. Don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, but instead give a blessing. I read about a story of a soldier over in Iraq, and he was in a barracks with a lot of the soldiers there, and he was a Christian, and every night he'd read his Bible, he'd get down on his knees beside his bunk there, and he'd pray. And uh, the guys would kind of mock him and make fun of him. One night it really got going, and one of the soldiers from over a, a little ways away had a pair of dirty boots, and he slung them over there his way, and they came over and hit him in the face as he was there praying. And all the other guys got real excited because they thought there was going to be a fight, but he didn't retaliate. And to all their surprise, the next morning, not only were the boots returned to the man who'd thrown them, but they'd been polished. And the story goes that many of the men in that barracks became believers because of that man's testimony. Not only did he not retaliate, but he returned and gave a blessing instead. And you think about your life and my life, it would be a blatant double standard for you and for me who are sinful people to expect to, to receive the blessing of God in spite of our sins and yet fail to do the same thing for other people around us. Well, notice in verse 10, he says, let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil. If you're going to live the good life, you got to refrain your tongue from evil. Now, he's going back to the area of speech again, and I think this refers probably to corrupt speech, uh, gossip, slander. One man I read said this. He says, I don't have any problem keeping a secret and not gossiping. It's those people I tell that have the problem. <laughs> but refrain our tongue from evil. Filthy talk, dirty talk, gossip, slander, those kinds of things. And then it says, and keeps his lips from guile. Guile means deceitful speech, not telling the whole truth, uh, making a promise you don't plan to keep. And then he says, turn away from evil and do good. That word turn away from literally means take evasive action. A swerve aside, turn away from evil, swerve away from it, but don't just turn aside from the evil, do good. As you read the scriptures and you see the things in the Bible that God's calling you to do, do good. And then he says, seek peace and pursue it. And that word pursue literally means to hunt after it, to, to, to hunt for it aggressively and chase it. So you and I are to aggressively work for reconciliation with other people. One person I read said it like this. It's kind of like an oxymoron. Aggressively be a peacemaker. Or aggressively pursue peace and harmonious relationships. One of the things that I tell young couples that, are, that come in for pre-marriage counseling if I'm going to do their wedding, in fact, I just met with a young couple Friday doing some pre-marriage counseling. One of the things I tell them always is this, as we kind of talk about their, their relationship and their two families and all that they're going to be joining together. I make this comment. I say, do everything you can short of sinning to get along with one another's families. Um, you know, you don't want to sin, but anything you can do that's short of committing a sin that you can do to get along with the people in one another's families, do it. Because life is too short to go through life fighting with people and disrupted relationships. And again, when all that's going on, you're not living the good life. 
Life's miserable when all that's taking place. Now, sometimes you may not be successful in having a good relationship with somebody no matter how hard you try. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. There's some people, they're not going to have peace. They won't have it. There's nothing you can do about it, but as much as it depends on you, do everything you can to have peace. So when you put all this together here this morning, what we see is the good life is a life lived in meaningful relationship with God and other people. It's about relationships. So this statement here in verse 10 about living and loving the good life and seeing good days is surrounded by all these statements that are a call uh, to good relationships. Now, finally, in verse 12, we have what I call the expectation. There's two things we can expect in this passage if we live the good life, two effects from having good, healthy, holy relationships with other people. The first one is, notice verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. In other words, God's favor is going to be on your life. The eyes of God here means more than God is just watching you. We know that God's omniscient. He's always watching. It's not just that he's watching us. He's watching over us. When we're living the kind of life that's described here in relationship with other people, the the, the eyes of God are on us, God's watch care and God's faithfulness and God's favor. So while you and I are living this way, getting along with other people, submitting to other people, God's eyes are upon us to bless us, to watch us and to take care of us, and his favor is upon us. Now I want that in my life. Another thing that I tell young couples when I'm doing premarital counseling with them is the number one thing you want in your marriage is you want the blessing of God upon your life and your marriage. You want that above everything else. And it's saying to us here that the eyes of God are going to be upon you. His blessing will be on you. But not only that, notice the middle of the verse, his ears will listen to you. For the ears of the Lord attend to their prayer. Again, it's their prayer. It's talking about the people who are living this way. So God's ears attend to the prayers of the righteous who live in good relationships with other people. By the way, this is the second time in this letter that Peter has related our prayer life to how we treat other people. Remember back up in chapter 3, verse 7, he tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she's a woman. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Remember we said that word means to break up a road. So I'm down here on earth and God's in heaven. There's a road between me and God. And if I'm not treating my wife the way I should, the road between me and heaven's broken up. My prayers are not effective. And he's saying the same thing here. If your relationships aren't right, God's not going to be as attentive to your prayers. If you're living this way, the ears of God are attending uh, to your prayers. All of us here know that our prayer life affects how we live, but did you know that how you live affects your prayer life? Especially how we get along with other people. And we all want God to be attentive to our prayers. That's one of the things I desire in my life more than anything else, is for God to be attentive to my prayers, because I need a lot. I need a lot of help. And I know a lot of people that need help, and I love to pray for people, and I want God to hear my prayers. If we want God to hear us and act on our behalf, 
and answer our prayers and to listen to us. We have to live life in relationship with other people in a way that's pleasing to God. I read a story a a while back about a lady getting a prayer answered I really liked. It was a mother. She had a child sick at home, and she went to the pharmacy to pick up some medicine, and she came out of the pharmacy, and she realized she'd locked her keys in her car. So she was all frustrated about it, and um, she didn't know what to do. So she called her daughter to tell her, I'm going to be home late, and locked the keys in the car. And the daughter said, well, I've heard that if you get a coat hanger and run it down in the, beside the window, you can open the, the car door. So the mother went in and got a coat hanger and came out there and tried and tried and couldn't do it. And she was so frustrated. And finally, she looked up at the Lord, and she said, Lord, I don't know what to do. My keys are locked in the car. My little girl's homesick. I'm here with this coat hanger. Lord, please send someone to help me. Right as she finished the prayer, a man drove up, kind of a real rough-looking guy, and dropped somebody off and said, uh, hey, what's the problem? She said, well, I've locked my keys in the car, and I've got this coat hanger, but I don't, don't know what to do with it. And he said, well, lady, let me have the coat hanger. And so he bends it up and inserts it in. First time, he, the door is open. And this woman's so overwhelmed, she throws her arms around this scruffy-looking man and gives him a hug. She says, oh, you're such a good man. And he said, lady, I'm no good man. I just got out of prison this morning. And as he walked away, she lifted her hands to heaven again and said, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer, and even more so for sending me a professional. (laughs) I like that. God will even send us a professional, right, when we need it to help us. But that's what we want in life. We want God to be attentive and His ear to be listening and tuned to our prayers. And he says, if we live this kind of life that we've seen today, the good life, one of the things we can expect is for God to attend to our prayers. So God is eager to pour out his blessings on us. He's eager to hear our cry if we watch our mouths and we turn away from evil and we pursue peace with other people. And then the end of verse 12, we see this negative incentive, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord often denotes God's anger and displeasure. I don't want the face of God against me in displeasure. I want the eyes of God upon me and the ears of God attending to me. It's a a sobering warning that the face of God is against those that do evil. So let me ask you this morning, are you living the good life? Do you enjoy your life every day? Are you just enduring life or are you enjoying life? The good life is not a life that is free from hardship and difficulty and heartache. It's not about how much money you have or what kind of car you drive or what you look like or how popular or successful you may be. The real good life, according to the Bible, is a a life that is in rich relationship with God and with other people. And that is the good people and the difficult people. So whatever you do, don't miss the good life. And especially today, if you're a younger person here, don't miss out on the good life. Read a passage like this and ask God by His Spirit to empower you to have the kinds of relationships uh, that are laid out here. Now, another thing is, I don't know about you, but I love to be around people who love life. I like to be around people who have a zest for life, uh, who want to see good days. It's infectious and contagious, and it rubs off. And I I would say probably most of you here, you would say, well, that's, that's kind of the kind of people I like to be around as well. Let me close with this this morning. It's a quote by R.C. Sproul that really ministered to me this week. It's in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, some people seem to have an ongoing love affair with life. Isn't that great? They have an ongoing love affair with life. 
Their excitement and optimism about each day are contagious because they communicate a passion for living life to the fullest. That is the way we're supposed to be as Christians. We have a tendency to define our pilgrimage in this world in terms of good days and bad days, but we should enjoy a multitude of good days because we are in touch with the author of good days. Isn't that great? We're in touch with the author of good days. Again, it's the, the relationship with God that's first. But to have an ongoing love affair with life and excitement and optimism about each day that's contagious because we communicate a passion for living life to the fullest. That's what God desires for you and for me. And we can have that life if we'll develop daily a, a rich relationship with God. And then ask God to help us by His Spirit to energize us and empower us to live at peace with people around us, to not return insult for insult, evil for evil, but instead give a blessing. It's going to take God's power for that to take place. But as we have these relationships on our life that are right, we're going to live the good life in spite of what other difficulties and troubles we may have. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that through Jesus Christ that we can know the author of good days. Oh God, you're the author of all of life and author of all the good days. We thank you that we can know you personally through your son, Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here who's never trusted him, Father, may they look to you now and taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste that, take that first taste of your grace and your mercy through your son. And Father, I thank you for all of us here, whatever stage of life we're in, whatever difficulties we may be enduring, we can have a zest for life. We thank you that you desire to bless your children, to have your eyes upon us, and your ears attentive to our prayers. So we come now and humbly ask that you transform us by your spirit to be submissive people who love and who bless others that can be blessed by you. Well, Father, give us the good life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, stand with me for the benediction. We want to leave here with God's blessing upon us today. And if you are visiting with us, if you've got these doors on the left side there's in the lobby, there's a welcome center there, and you can get some more information about our church. I'll be down front here after the service.